watch uh, Adam's sermons. Uh, one, while we were actually overseas. The other, when I got back here. And uh, wow, what a great worship experience you all had. Uh, one person said, uh, we missed you, but we didn't miss a beat. And I want you to know that is music to a pastor's ears. That is wonderful. And I am so grateful. Uh, before we get started, um, I want to uh, tell you two takeaways uh, for me personally. Uh, we are planning at the end of the last, I think the last Wednesday of June, we're going to give a full uh, report and host, hopefully an inspirational report on our trip to the Holy Land. It was more than a tour. It was a mission trip as well. Uh, the two things that I took away is, number one, never seen so much of nothing in my life. And mile after mile, just incredible. That impressed me because that's where Jesus was for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. Uh, yes, people walked through there. They, were, they would either stay near the Jordan or somewhere, uh, you know, where there's going to be an oasis. But Jesus, for 40 days, was alone in this desolate, desolate place. Which leads me to my second takeaway, and that is this. People ask me what was the number one uh, impression that I got from my journey. It was being with people that I know and love, experiencing it together. I know that sounds anticlimactic for some of you. But I am a relational experiencer, uh, not a, necessarily a geographical experiencer. Um, I uh, went there in, uh, to kind of give you a negative of that. Uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, I think, uh, no, 23 in 1971, I went uh, with a college singing group. And uh, people asked me, what do you remember? And I remembered I was infatuated with this young lady who was on the trip. So I didn't remember much of it. My point being, if you're going to go to the Holy Land, go with people that you really care about and that you can experience it together. So uh, anyway, uh, there is one story that I won't tell until uh, the last part of uh, when we give our reports on uh, the last Wednesday. And that is that uh, there was an offer made for Brittany to stay because they loved her so much. And I underbid I'd heard that the price of camels were anywhere from 2500 to 7000 And I underbid the amount of camels. Uh, the people who wanted Brittany to stay, they just made me look like I was just a cheap person. But back to the scripture. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We are at the end of our mini-series going through verses 1 through 9. We have been on 1 through 9 for about six weeks and this is the last of those. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached by my gospel or in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, we addressed the grace that strengthens us. And uh, the, the issue there was that many of us believe, because I've been saved, now I've got to live a good life for Christ. And the way that this phrase is worded is that it is passive. We receive grace that strengthens us. And so just as we received grace in order to come to know Jesus Christ, we are not to think that we are to live in the power of ourselves to please God. It is all by grace. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we want to have and know and understand the key of living a Christian life after we've come to know the Lord, it is through the humility of admitting that we cannot live the Christian life. It must be by and through God's grace. The second thing that we address was in verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others. Timothy had been mentored at home. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwells first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. What we have by looking at these two verses, one from chapter 1, one from chapter 2, is that Timothy came to know the Lord under the umbrella of his family, and he was being mentored The Bible says that Paul noticed that there was a disciple, a young man. He had already been discipled at home. And now one older minister, Paul, speaking to another young minister, Timothy, is saying, do the same thing in the church. I want you to entrust the gospel to faithful men who can teach others. We must think generationally. Even this church is not about us. It's about him and his kingdom and what is going to be left to the next generation. The next thing we looked at was pictures of the disciple. A soldier is one who suffers for the one who enlists him. Jesus Christ enlisted us. We do not get entangled in civilian affairs. That is, we are to keep our focus on what God has called us to do in Jesus Christ like a good soldier. The athlete keeps his eye on the prize. That's how he crosses the finish line. A farmer is someone who works diligently all year long in order to bring in the crops. This is to be our mentality. The next thing, the last two um, Adam preached on remembering the biblical Christ, uh, Jesus. His title was Christ at the Crux. He emphasized that we are to know and understand Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are not to simply talk 
about the Jesus that we want. We are to remember who he is. Uh, We forgot verse 7, to meditate on scriptures. This is not Eastern meditation where you look at your navel and think inside. We are to meditate on the revelation that God has given to us. And this brings us then to our last phrase, the word of God is not bound. Paul knew why he was imprisoned. He had been treated like a dangerous criminal. What was so dangerous about Paul? Why would they want to kill him for simply preaching the gospel? Well, who... Now, we know that it was in God's plan for Jesus Christ to die, but who who was the instrument of his death? Rome was. And you know what? When Rome kills someone, they're supposed to stay dead. They're the final authority on life and death. And what was Paul preaching? Paul was preaching, Jesus has risen from the dead. That was a threat to the power of Rome. Do you think that they became powerful by playing nice with everybody? Absolutely not. They perfected crucifixion. They didn't begin it, but they knew how to do it. And when you crucify someone, they better stay dead. But Jesus didn't stay dead, friends. Paul was going around telling the whole world was being put to flame by this message of a resurrected Christ. It had to be stopped. Paul is a few days from his own execution. But he's comforted. He's comforted by a higher truth than his own terminal life. And that is that the resurrected Christ is still powerfully spreading his word. Though Paul is in prison, the word of God is not in prison. It's an inescapable truth. This is his testimony. There is no power or authority, not even Rome, can prevent the gospel from accomplishing its purpose. Throughout history, men have tried. In 303 A.D., Emperor Diocletian uh, issued an edict to destroy Christians and their Bible. Horrible persecution. Over a burned Bible or scripture, he wrote these words. The name Christian is now extinguished. Well, 25 years later, he was dead. The new emperor, Constantine, commissioned 50 copies of the scriptures that they had to be printed at government expense. In 1776, you've heard the word Voltaire, the French philosopher. He made this bold announcement. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except the one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Well, a hundred years later, after his death, his own press 
and his own house was used to print Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. A hundred years later, from his prediction, the first edition of his work, his edition of his work, was sold for 11 cents. But the British government paid the Tsar of Russia a half a million dollars for an ancient Bible manuscript. I remember as a child the imagery of um, that through the years skeptics have tried to hammer away and break at uh, the Bible and his word. And the, the imagery that I learned back in the 50s, yes, yesterday was my birthday, it was in the 50s, but I remember this, the skeptics are hammers beating on an anvil. The hammers are gone. The anvil remains. Now, I'm going to use the following illustrations just here in the United States. They are not meant to be political. Why do they seem political, especially to millennials? Because the government and political groups have made moral issues political. I'm speaking about moral issues If you're thinking politically, it's because someone else made these issues political. In recent issues here in the United States, we're reminded of the culture war. Just this past week, the Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to in favor of Mr. Phillips the Baker. A lot of us were very grateful for that ruling. The interesting thing is that it had nothing to do with free speech and it had very little to do with freedom of religion. What the Supreme Court talked about, what was most interesting, is that Mr. Phillips, the baker, was threatened by officials in Colorado. The Supreme Court ruled that the government does not have a right to have a tyrannical attitude toward religious people. Phillips said, we serve everybody who comes in the shop. We just can't create every cake they ask us to. He would refuse to make Halloween cakes or anti-American themes. And then this is his quote. It always, it's always the message that I decline to create rather than the person. You know, that started in 2012. It took six years for it to resolve. During the same year, the same government went against Hobby Lobby and the nuns. And what the government was saying was this. You may have free speech, but we can force you to go against your convictions To violate our beliefs. Living by the word of God has always had its difficulties. In whatever country it's been in, speaking the word of God can get you in trouble. Some of you already know that there are pastors in Canada have been cited and fined for preaching God's word that is not politically correct. 
If you're idealizing Canada, you need to know the restrictions that they have on speech. Several years ago, sermons by pastors in Houston were subpoenaed by the mayor because they defined certain religious speak hate speech. But none of this is new. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve believed the word of God until Satan came and said, did he really say this? You see, once we begin to question, did God really say this, then we are inclined to be silent when someone else has an opposite view because we're not confident that God said this. I'm sure that some of you have thought to yourself after hearing something, don't rock the boat. Don't ruffle any feathers. What happens to evil when good men say nothing? It's interesting that people are inclined to confess Jesus privately, but not publicly. By their silence, they deny. But if you want to go one step further... And to verbally deny, you need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That is not a feel-good passage of Scripture. And that is not the Jesus that some people are preaching. They skip over verses like this. You see, we forget something. We have the good news for this world. The gospel of Christ. That is good news. And Paul is sitting in prison, in chains, locked up, not able to preach outside the walls. But people kept hearing the word of God. Because it was unbound. I remember hearing for the first time, I think it was in seminary, Paul was not chained to the soldiers. They were chained to him. The word of God wasn't bound then. It is not bound now. It will never be bound. The Greek word for word is logos. In the Greek, it means a word or speech or principle or thought behind the speech. In Greek philosophy, it referred to the universal divine reason or the mind of God. But in the New Testament, John, we read this in our responsive reading, takes this idea of the expression or the mind of God and he very specifically defines what and who the Logos is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He, not it, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, not it. And without 
him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John is making it clear. The the abstract idea of logos that was in the Greek and Roman world is now being defined. And it is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the expressed image of the very heart and the mind of of God the Father. That's why he is referred to as the Logos. He is the living word. This is important to understand. Because the living word is the author of the written word. The living word already existed at the beginning of time. He did not give us the written word as a substitute for Jesus Christ. Listen, I know of people and I have known people who they almost worship the Bible. It's called bibliolatry. The Bible is the written expression of the very heart and thought of God, but only Jesus Christ, the living word, is to be worshipped. When we read the Bible, we are reading the thoughts and the expressions of the author who is the living word of God. Many writers one author. Do you remember what Jesus said? Well, let me say that there are people, there are preachers who never want to preach from the Old Testament because it's ugly and hostile and there's bad things in it. Well, that's, I don't read it because of the bad things, but I think the fact that God would put the bad things in it tell me that it's the truth. If I wanted to rewrite history, I would make myself look pretty good. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, if Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, how much more is he, the living word, the fulfillment of all that is written in the New Testament? He is the word of God in human form, and he was not bound or restricted by anyone. In fact, he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And the empty tomb destroyed death. One of the last things that Jesus told us is in Matthew, all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The word of God will accomplish everything that God intends it to do because the living word of God is behind the written word of God, making it active. Not even the gates of hell can withstand the truth of the Word of God and His church.
So read it. Study it. Allow the Spirit to feed you. Speak it faithfully, boldly. John Christum was a 4th century preacher. He was called the golden-tongued preacher. And this is what he said about this scripture that we're reading. But now God has made us such that nothing can subdue us. For our hands are bound, but not our tongue. Since nothing can bind the tongue but cowardice and unbelief. Where these things are not, though you fasten change upon us, the preaching of the gospel is not bound. Therefore, there is no reason that we as Christ followers should be afraid to speak God's word. Do we believe the last words of Jesus? All authority and power is given to him. Therefore, go and proclaim and make disciples. People, governments, media, the intellectual elites, they can do whatever they want to, and they might be able to stop and censor us, but they will never be able to stop and censor the Word of God. Because He has already overcome the world. One of our favorite hymns written by Luther. Just contemplate on the words. I'm going to slow it down. The words are going to be on the screen. A mighty fortress is our God. A sword and shield victorious. He breaks the cruel oppressor's rod and wins salvation glorious. The old evil foe Sworn to work us woe, with dread, craft, and might, he arms himself to fight. No, on earth, one has, he has no equal. No strength of ours can match his might. We would be lost, rejected. But now a champion comes to fight. Whom God himself elected. Ask who this may be. Lord of hosts is he. Jesus Christ our Lord. God's only son adored. He holds the field victorious. Though hordes of devils fill the land. All threatening to devour us. We tremble not. Unmoved we stand. They cannot overpower us. This world's prince may rage in fierce war engage. He is doomed to fail. God's judgment must prevail. One little word subdues him. I love that. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foe who fear it. For God himself fights by our side with weapons of the Spirit. If they take our house, goods, fame, child or spouse, wrench our life away, 
They cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. My dear friends, the word of God is not bound, not because of us, but because the living word lives and he reigns. Even if the baker had lost the court case, even if the nuns had lost their case, even if the law of man against the law of God reigns in this country, the word of God is not bound. So don't take too much glee because human beings make a decision that we like. But don't get depressed when they make decisions that we don't. Because the word of God is not bound. There's one thing that we know. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. Jesus is the living word. He instructed us to remember what it cost him to bring salvation to us and to all those who would place their faith in him. It was on the cross that the living word died. And it was on the third day that the living word lived. Again, and he continues to live, and he is coming back. So, my friends, where does your allegiance lie? In the word of men and governments, or in the word of God, supported by the living word of God? who permeates the hearts and the souls of people, whether they're in prison or around the world, or perhaps even here. I wanted this message to be encouraging, but I also want it to be convicting. Sometimes we place our faith in mortal men. Please, Remind each other not to do that. It is Christ and Him alone. As a church, we are a Christ-centered, family-equipping church. What does this mean? Christ above all. Family-equipping means Christ above all, starting in our homes, and then in each extending relationship. Is Christ your all in all? If you don't know him, you can come to know him. I appreciate so much Mike referring to our statement about the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is about remembrance. Remembrance what it costs Christ for our salvation. And I would love between now and by the time the elements get to you, that if you don't know him, that right now, in your seat, you can say, Lord, I finally get it. It's all about you. It's not about me. I confess that I'm a sinner, that I need you, that I am 100% dependent upon your grace. Would you save me? Would you come into my life and would you change me? And then perhaps this would be, even if you've taken the elements before, your first real Christian, Christ-following communion. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us, help us 
to trust you. Where we are faithless, would you give us faith that we may trust in your grace? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.